through this in light of the things that God said to the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2, and this being directly addressed to that congregation, and then later on expanded uh, in what Paul had to say to what was the first era of the church during the time that he lived, which we have come to know as the Ephesian era. <clears throat> but I do believe that all seven of those eras exist today, and that there is instruction there in all of them really for us, because the book of Revelation was written for us here at the end more than for anyone else, and therefore everything in there is important to us. But he had just said that here in chapter 4 that we are called together not to be children tossed about, but to achieve spiritual maturity and to grow up to be the kind of beings that Christ himself is, to the full matureness that he is, and to edify each other in love, because we're all members of one body. We're all together here as one body. We're not separate parts. Uh, sometimes as human beings we will equate with others. Sometimes we like to feel close with others and feel like we're all in the same boat together. And yet at other times, depending on circumstances and emotions of the moment, we like to draw apart and feel like we are alone or that we are separate. But bodies don't work that way. The body is always attached. And if we are severed from the body, like a limb on our bodies can be severed, then we're not part of the body anymore. And that part which is not connected dies. So it's very important that we recognize that we are at all times attached, even though sometimes we look at an injured member of our body and that doesn't look too good to us, but we can't look down on it, it's still part of the body. And we all have to have the same care one for another. And usually if there's something wrong with one of the members of your physical body, You'll do everything you can to help it feel better, to look better, or whatever, uh, than it does at the moment because it's injured in some way or hurts in some way, and it gets a lot of attention. That's what he's telling us here, that we're to be fitted together in love. So if one of us hurts, we all hurt, and we try to do everything we can to help that one that is in a hurt. He said in verse 17, then, of Ephesians 4, <clears throat> This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind. Whatever we choose to be vain about, to be puffed up about, to be self-important about, to be selfish about, that's what vanity of the mind is talking about. We're not to be that way. Having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God. There are things that we can do that alienate us from the life of God. A God is and represents all life. And apart from Him, life cannot exist. So if we do things that alienate us from the life of God, then we are going to die. <clears throat> Spiritually and ultimately physically. 
So we need to be very careful about those things which might alienate us. Now, what are they? Through the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. Well, there are people who are not attached to God, who are not a part of God's life or lifeline, if you will. And therefore, they're ignorant of certain things. Now, we are cognizant of many things. We're aware of many things. We're spiritually aware more than anyone else out there in the world. So we do have an advantage. They're alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling, true, right emotion, past feeling, beyond feeling, apart from feeling, have given themselves over to lawlessness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. Now, if you read this years ago, say several hundred years ago, maybe you couldn't quite comprehend it as much as you can today. Do you think that might be so? We're in a world that is absolutely taken over by greed and uncleanness in every part of life. We have it all around us. We should not be blind to what Paul is talking about here. Now, in reality, people could have looked around in that day and seen probably just as much human nature, blindness, and greediness as we can see today. Because human nature has never changed. These things have always been. So whether it was in Paul's day or 500 years ago or today, but we are in a very, very sick society that is sold out the right kind of living and the right true happiness for greed and materiality and thinking that those things will make them happy. And yet they don't. If our way of life was making us happy, why would we try to hide it in drugs, hide it in alcohol, to hide it in various ways. People are unhappy is the reason they try to find ways to escape their lives. But you have not so learned Christ. We're on a different level. We've learned some things. We should know more than these people around us who are so caught up in the way of life that is today the American or the human or the satanic way of living. We've learned something different. If so be that you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Emmanuel, that you put off concerning the former conduct, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. This world lives by its desires, its lusts, its wants. Whatever they want, they pursue. We've been taught a better way. We're supposed to put off that so that it no longer affects us. 
Is it any wonder he constantly says to come out of her, my people, be different, don't be like her. Here he says the same thing, really, in a little bit different language, but the principle is always the same. I took note of one of the psalms we were singing before, just as the service began, and I intend to bring it in a little later on. If I don't forget it, maybe I should bring it in right now, and maybe it'll come back to mind then as well, but we were on page 63 singing uh, Psalm 81. And he talks about his own people would not hear. They would not hear his voice. They only wanted their own way, following in their lusts. Oh, that my people would obey, walking in all my ways. I should have soon delivered them, turned my hand against their foe. That's Psalm 81. That was written way back in David's time. And we'll find that Paul is writing the same thing right after Christ had been to this earth and died and been resurrected and left. Nothing had changed. We can read both Psalm 81 about ancient Israel. We can read Ephesians about Israel in Paul's day. And we can analyze Israel and ourselves in this day and age. Nothing has changed. Isn't that an incredible thing? Now, why? We'll see that as we go on. But keep that in mind because the words we just read from Psalm 81 are very pertinent to what Paul has to say between here and the end of the chapter. <clears throat> so he says, Don't follow corruptness according to your deceitful lusts. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind. We heard in the sermonette to bring every thought under control. That is a mighty, mighty challenge. And something that no human being other than Christ has ever lived up to and accomplished. That you might put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Righteousness simply means doing that which is right, that which is good, that which will lead to peace, prosperity, and happiness, and joy. That's what righteousness is. Following the ways of God which lead to peace and happiness. And it leads to true holiness. There is holiness that is a sham. Self-righteousness that isn't truly holy at all, but is only a, an act. And that's why also in the sermonette we talked about, or they talked, he talked about, cleaning the inside, not just the outside of the cup. Paul is saying the exact same thing here in different words than Christ used. But it's the same meaning. True holiness means from the inside out. For it's real, it's genuine. Sure, not just a way of acting that appears good to others. You know, every one of us is capable of acting among ourselves in a holy fashion or a, an acceptable fashion or something that looks good to each other or to the others around us, don't we? And yet at the same time we are putting on this act, we can be thinking things that are wrong. 
But no one else can see. God can read our minds and He knows what we're thinking. But you can be saying one thing and thinking something entirely different all at the same time, can't you? We all have that ability and capacity and use it frequently. Well, true holiness is coming to think and feel the way you're trying to act on the outside. Now, that doesn't mean we ought to give up trying to do what's right while we deal with our inner selves, with our minds. I mean, you could say, well, if it's that way, then we'll just give up trying to even look holy. <laughs> well, no, that would, that would compound the problem. So continue to do those things which outwardly are good and helpful while you fight the battle inside of controlling the mind and emotions where the real battle lies. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor. Now we're to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves, too. We need to be careful. Now, Christ did not always answer every question with the whole truth and nothing but the truth. There were times when he concealed the truth because he didn't think that was the best thing for someone to know. And in fact, he said, I speak in parables so that they cannot understand. He did not want them to know certain things because it wouldn't be good for them. Had he spoken right out front and said everything that was good and right and true without hiding the truth, then he would have had to have condemned those people because they would have known better and he knew their mind was such that if they knew all the truth, they wouldn't follow it anyway. And you are held accountable for what you know. So he was wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove. It didn't hurt them, really, not to know the truth, but it would have hurt them had they known the truth. So you can conceal sometimes the truth of a matter for the right purposes. So that you're not doing a false witness or deceiving for nefarious or wrong reasons. But that you're not telling the whole truth. We do it with our children all the time, do we not? There are certain things at certain times your children simply don't need to know. It wouldn't help them any. So you say things in such a way that you're not lying to them, but you're also not telling them what's really going on. It's not time for them to know certain things. So... We don't have to always just pour out everything that's inside us to everyone, do we? Somebody says, what are you thinking? Well, you don't necessarily need to be thinking. I was thinking about slapping you silly. They don't need to know that. That's an emotion you need to be controlling. But we are capable of thinking two or three things at once. It's incredible how the mind is. Now, you work with animals, 
And generally they have a one-track mind. Maybe you don't want the dog chasing the cat. And you can yell at that dog once he started chasing the cat. You can't change his mind because all he's thinking is cat. It's all that's in his mind. You can yell at the top of your lungs and he doesn't even hear it because he's just thinking cat. Now, if you see him get in, starting to get interested in the cat and you yell before he zeroes in on it, then you can stop him, maybe. But once his mind says cat, that's all he can see. Now, we have capacities far beyond the animals where we can be thinking and feeling a lot of different things at the same time. So, we don't want to deceive for the sake of harm. But at the same time, we don't have to be absolutely truthful about everything that goes through our mind either. That would create problems. Because we don't always think as we should. But what he's driving at here is that we're members one of another. So let's be sincere and open and loving and kind and gentle and do that which we can to uplift and help one another. Be you angry and sin not. Is it wrong to get angry? Not always. Christ had righteous indignation at times. He was very angry at the money changers in the temple, and he became somewhat violent in his reaction to them. You better believe they didn't misunderstand what he was saying as they scrambled to get out of there. So you can be angry, but in that do not sin. And let not the sun go down on your wrath. So even if you do get angry, and maybe if you have just cause for doing so, don't pout over it, don't continue it, don't prolong it, get over it. By sundown, beginning of a new day. Lamentations says that God gives us a new day every day. But he forgets yesterday and only deals with today. And we should do that with one another. You know, people sometimes get angry or have a grudge against someone and they retain it for days, weeks, months, years, decades. Sometimes a lifetime they stay angry. Sometimes they kind of put it aside, but it's always there, lurking just beneath the surface, waiting to be waked up, renewed, and all come back to mind again. We kid each other sometimes, and I think in a right spirit. I'm not going to get mad at you now, it's only three minutes till sundown, I'm going to wait till after sundown, then I'll have 24 hours to be mad at you. I can retain it longer. And it's a joke, but what, what he's really saying here is don't stay angry with one another. We're all members of the same body. People sometimes say, well, I could just kick myself. How long do they retain that emotion about themselves? Usually not too long. 
we get over it. We, we make peace with ourselves. And we should do that with each other. Neither give place to the devil. When you remain angry, you're giving him opportunity. Because Satan can use anger to destroy and to tear apart. So we need to be careful what we allow ourselves to become angry about, because some anger indeed is sin. And even if it's righteous anger, get over it. Don't let the sun go down on it. Because you're giving the devil opportunity to misuse and abuse your emotions, to control you, to cause you to hate, dislike, or be frustrated with your brother. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good. Some people, rather than work, would prefer to steal because it's easier, perhaps, to steal something than it is to work for it. But he said, don't take the lazy way out. Do an honest day's work. Be paid for that which you do and accomplish, which is good, that you may have to give to him that needs. So we should all be hardworking and producing so that when somebody does have need, we're in a position to be able to help them. Our whole society is set up to create indebtedness so that we owe something to the system and they can stay with us to take every, at us, to take everything we have. To tie us up and sew us up in their system of credit to the point we don't have any opportunity to move. And they're after you at all times. Spend that which you do not have, and it chains you. It chains you down. It enslaves you. And part of coming to have the liberty in Christ is to get out of that system where you're enslaved to the system so that you can be someone in a position to help others rather than chained to have to serve the system around you. So you see why it's so important that we get out of debt, that we don't prolong it, that we don't misuse it, that we get to the point we don't owe money, but we're able to give to others who are in need. Now, don't be discouraged and frustrated then by this, because if we find ourselves in that position then we need to cease the things that we were doing that caused us to be there and begin to work ourselves out of the hole. We did it, in a sense, innocently, not realizing how enslaved it would make us to the system around us. It was so easy for us all to fall into that. And boy, once they get you in that system, you're trapped. It's almost like catch-22. Everything you earn has to go in a hole somewhere to keep them from coming to get something you have. 
Well, it gets down to where every dime is spoken for before you ever get it. Or as Haggai says, where you have pockets with holes. You work, you earn money, and it just disappears just like that. Because of the bills. Because of the credit. We bought into the system. Well, we all did, to one degree or another, most of us. Then we have to work ourselves out of it. We have to quit doing those things that got us there, and then work our way out of the hole. And don't be embarrassed if you need to get somebody that has some wisdom in those areas to help you do it. Because it's a very difficult thing to do. It's easy to get yourself in it. It's very hard to get yourself out of it. And sometimes we need help. Even the world provides whole businesses that are financial and credit counselors to help people figure out how to get above it. Because we're lost in it. Some people are driven to steal. Do you think with the increasing economic problems we have today that crime is going to go up? Because it's harder to work and earn a living and make ends meet. And people go the easy route and they begin to steal. So crime is already going up. People who did not steal in the past are beginning to. And it will get a lot worse. Well, we need to be working ourselves the other direction so that we're getting in a better rather than a worse position. God would have us do that. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace, peace, happiness, help, help to others. That the things we say will be of benefit and uplift and help one to another. Now, that doesn't mean we can't use a certain amount of kidding and even somewhat sarcastic uh, jokes with one another, because we can kid ourselves and each other and, and help each other be in a better mood just by laughing and joking about ourselves back and forth. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But what he's talking about here is corrupt communication that hurts. We have to be even careful with humor, very careful with humor, because sometimes when we're maybe joking, it can hurt. Well, that's a very difficult thing to control. Humor is probably one of the very hardest things to get right. It's, it's very difficult because there are so many little nuances, little feelings that can come to play. But if we kid each other, we'd better let each other know for sure that we truly do love one another. So that overall, our personality is such that it's helpful in strengthening and encouraging, even in joking, and not discouraging and frustrating. So, and then he says in verse 30, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you were sealed unto the day of redemption. For the Holy Spirit of God, and you know the fruit of it, from Galatians, is love and joy and peace. Happiness, long-suffering, faith, love. That's the Spirit of God. 
he has a mind and emotional pattern of uplift. And his spirit is an uplifting spirit, a strengthening spirit. That's the way he thinks. And when we have his spirit, we should be transformed into people who are uplifting and helpful one to another. And encouraging to one another to be strong, to be faithful, to hang in there. Uh, even if we describe things around us that are bad, it talks that, about that in Malachi, that we will speak one to another and try to encourage one another that even when things are going really bad in the world around us, we can be moving another direction. That's the spirit we should have, the attitude and mind set. Grieve not the Holy Spirit, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. What's the day of redemption? That's when we're redeemed from this earth at the first resurrection. So he's speaking to these people in Ephesus and saying to them that they are already sealed. People look at the book of Revelation, chapter 7 and 14, and they think that there's a moment in time there, right at the end, when 144,000 people are sealed. No, we're already sealed ahead of time. That is the completion of the full number of 144,000. But those people back there were already being sealed to the day of redemption. Sealed, that is set aside, stamped by the Holy Spirit until the day of the resurrection. Paul is already sealed. His acceptance in the first resurrection is set and secure, stamped by the Spirit of God. Herbert Armstrong, I think, and many people who have lived and died in the church in this end time are already sealed, and now that they are dead, it is secure. Now, if these people in Ephesus who had problems, Paul's addressing some of their problems here, and yet he tells them, you are sealed in the Spirit. When you're baptized, God puts His seal of approval on you, you're made clean in the blood of Christ, and you are sealed to the day of redemption. Now, the only danger is that we break the seal, and we have to be replaced. That's why we don't grieve the Spirit of God by going the way of Satan. You know, when an envelope is sealed... You can't just pick up the flap and open it. But you can take something and put under the edge of it, and you can begin to work it, and you can work it and work it until you finally break the seal, and the flap comes open. Now, God puts His stamp of approval on us and says we'll be in the first resurrection if we go ahead and follow through and do the things that we're supposed to do. We speak of government seals where they stamp a paper, and it is officially approved. Each and every one of you who have been baptized in the body of Christ have had a stamp of God's approval put on you. He called you by name. He brought you to repentance. You accepted His conditions. You were baptized and had your sins washed away, and then is when He put His Holy Spirit in you with the laying on of hands, and put his stamp of approval on you. 
Now, don't work at the seal until you work it loose. Stay sealed until the day of redemption. <clears throat> Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Now, we have gone through a period of time in the church when there was a great deal of bitterness, there was a great deal of wrath, anger, and clamor. You could hear it. Emotional, verbal clamor. And much evil speaking. We went through a, quite a period of time of that. Now, I hope that we are in the process of putting that away. And the malice that we felt toward other members, deacons or elders of the ministry, or to Herbert Armstrong himself, or whatever, to God, ultimately, that we put that away. We don't feel that anymore. We repent of that. Now, we've been shown away, haven't we? We were insecure. We were confused. We were pulled back and forth. We didn't know what to do. And we were angry. Now, God has shown us in His Word why all this has happened, what has occurred, who is responsible, and He showed us a better way, a way to fix the confusion and frustration that the scattering entails. In other words, we should be in a healing mode now, in a get-over-it mode. Forget that which is behind and press on toward the future mode. Not holding any grudges or anger or malice toward any of those in the past. But that we know a new way. We've seen the light. We know where we need to go. Well, let's go there. Now, I haven't heard much of that kind of talk now in this group in a long, long time. Because I think we have been doing what Paul is talking about here. We've moved past a lot of that. We see a goal and a purpose ahead. And so the anger and the confusion begins to melt away as you line out on a new path. As you begin a new look or outlook on life. But still in all. It's easy for us to have anger and malice and even grudges among ourselves. <clears throat> so let's put that away. Now, you can't be emotionless, can you? That's not good either. That was one of the problems we had was a lackadaisical, who cares, whatever approach. I, I, in my mind, I coined a new word this morning. Um, slackadaisical instead of lackadaisical it's just slack you know like a rope with no tension on it just bleh. it's kind of the way we were spiritually so if you put the anger and the frustration away you can't just be in a vacuum where you're not thinking or having emotions or not feeling we need feeling so what do you replace all that bitterness and anger with? Verse 32, be you kind one to another. Kindness requires emotion. It requires feeling. 
I have a baby goat over there that still after over a week of life is just now beginning to learn to suck a bottle. Almost starved to death because it couldn't suck on what its mama provided for it. I've been trying to teach it for over a week. And I've been dealing with my attitude because I should be kind-hearted and gentle and loving toward that poor little thing. He, he's sick, maybe pneumonia. He's weak. And, and he's just barely alive. And it, to me, is so frustrating to want to give it and help it have life and to put that nipple in its mouth and move it around and try to get it to suck on it. I wind up kind of squeezing it down him till it starts bubbling out his mouth and nearly drowns him. And I have to deal with being kind-hearted and loving toward the poor little thing. He stinks, too. And once in a while I'll self-catch myself saying, Well, you idiot! That really penetrates deeply into his thought process, I'm sure. Learn! And then when I'm sitting there frustrated with that poor little thing, I think of God looking down at Daryl saying, Idiot! Learn! I'm thankful he has more patience and mercy than I do. But being kind one to another requires control of our emotions and feelings and being sure that they're there. Be kind one to another. Tender-hearted. Loving. Gentle. Tender-hearted. Easily entreated is another way that that's put in another place. It's easy to be hard-hearted. It's easy to be cold. It's easy to be rude. It's easy to have feelings, even while we're smiling at someone, thinking of what a scalawag they really are. But the tenderness needs to be on the inside. Tender and loving and kind. Forgiving one another. Not always easy. In fact, it's usually hard to forgive. When someone's hurt your feelings, ignored you, or you thought they did, you don't know. So they walked by and they didn't even speak. How do you know that they even recognized you were there? Maybe they were in a hurry and were intent on something. You know? Somebody blows by you on the way to the bathroom. Maybe they got diarrhea. And they didn't speak to you. You wanted to stop and speak for five minutes. That would have been a disaster. But we imagine all kinds of things, don't we? How we got snubbed or socially slighted. Somebody doesn't treat us in the way that they did yesterday and suddenly we're paranoid about it. Why are they mad at me? They might not be mad at you at all. Maybe their tummy hurts. Maybe they got their mind on a bill they need to pay. You know, there could be a thousand things on their mind other than you. I think sometimes we're kind of vain anyway that we think the world revolves around us and 
They said, well, they must be thinking about me, but they just must not like me. No, maybe they're not thinking of you at all. Why do you think that everybody ought to be thinking about you all the time? There's some vanity that could be there as well. But sometimes people really do. It's not just imagined. Sometimes they really do snub us. Sometimes they really are angry with us or whatever. What did Christ say when all those people were so angry with him, beating him, slicing his flesh off his bones, and calling him every name filthy imaginable? Forgive them, Father. They don't really know what they're doing. What an incredible attitude. They were doing it on purpose. There was no pretense there. They wanted to flay the flesh off his bones. They wanted his blood to flow. They wanted him to die. They hated him with a purple passion. What's a purple passion? I don't know. With all their emotion and feeling, they hated him. And he forgave them. That's the way we're supposed to be. If someone here is really mistreating you and doing it on purpose, you need to have compassion and be willing to forgive. Forget it and move on. You know, sometimes I stub my own toe. I don't remember what I kicked the other day, but oh, it hurt. I forgave my toe and moved on. Made my whole body hurt, but, you know, I, why be angry at my toe the rest of the day? Forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. You know, there is no one here who has done anything to me. No one here. Nearly as bad as some of the things I've done to others in the past. I can say that for sure and for certain. No one has treated me as badly as I have treated some people in the past. God has forgiven me. So why should I not forgive you over some silly little or important big thing. We all have to be there and be like God is. His mercy endures forever. He holds no grudge. He gives us a clean, fresh start every morning. That's encouraging there in Lamentations 3 or 4, where it says that. Are we willing to give each other a clean, fresh start every morning? or at sundown, so that it is clean by morning. Chapter 5, Be you therefore followers of God as dear children, doing it the way He does it, and walk in love. That was the one thing He told the Ephesian era there in Revelation 2, that they needed to do was regain their first love. That depth of kindness, forgiveness, love, consideration, zeal, industry, excitement, 
Walk in love as Christ also has loved us and has given himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. His life, unsinful, was worth more than all of ours put together. And it was a sweet savor to God when Christ died. Because the scent of that sacrifice was so precious to God. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becomes saints. We are saints. We have a distorted view of what a saint is because what the Catholic Church has done over the centuries. Oh, there's a saint. And maybe two or three or four hundred years after somebody dies, they make them a saint. Like as a title. No, if we are the begotten of God, baptized and have God's Holy Spirit, we are a saint. Therefore, we are to act as becomes sainthood, the children of God. God is a perfect parent, but he does not yet have perfect children. But he is going to work through the process until his children are perfect, until they're spiritually mature and ready to be part of his kingdom. Now, you who have children do not have perfect children yet. It's a daily process of working at their attitudes, their approaches, their life, their education, until you present them to the world as mature adults having trained them. I know it's easy for us to get on each other because, well, your kids aren't perfect. Nobody's kids are perfect. Nobody's kids have ever been perfect. But by the time we finish our job, when they're age 20 and accountable totally to God for themselves, they should be reaching a maturity where they can live as upstanding citizens. And it is a lifelong or a 20-year process is what it is. So we don't need to condemn one another over seeing children with problems yet. Because we will all have them. God's children, us, still have problems. And it doesn't matter for 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years of age. We're still not mature and perfect children of God. It's a lifelong process. But we need to be working at it daily to be as saints should be. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not uplifting or convenient or helpful or good, but rather giving of thanks. Nothing wrong with a certain amount of joking, but we need to be careful that it's not foolish and filthy, but that it can be uh, uplifting. We can tell jokes, we can tell stories, and we can all laugh together. And there's a sense of camaraderie built when we laugh and are humorous with one another. There's nothing wrong with that as long as it ultimately points in a good direction. We all feel better when it's done instead of feeling worse. For this you know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater 
has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things comes the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. He expects us to change. And if we continue to live the way the world around us is living, then we will not be a part of the kingdom of God. So we have to constantly guard our minds and our hands and our feet not to go in the paths of this world. You know, what is a man doing when he tells you you don't have to keep the commandments of God? That's deceit. They think that as long as you've accepted the Lord, you can lie and cheat and steal and commit adultery and idolatry and covetousness and break the Sabbath and do all those things and still be in the kingdom of God because you're under grace, not under the law. Total distortion and deceit. Lying religion. They promise you heaven and tell you everything that would cause you to go to hell and using their parlance, their language. So it is a very deceiving world of religion we have out there. And someone came into the church of God and began to preach that. To tell us we didn't need to keep the Sabbath anymore. We didn't need to keep the Holy Days anymore. It'd be okay to keep Christmas and Easter and all those things that the Bible condemns. That we're under grace, not under the law. No, we're not under the penalty of the law if we obey it, but if we disobey the law, we come under the penalty of the law. They don't even understand the translation properly. And you know what? Almost overnight, half the church bought that deception that came in. That is scary, isn't it? What if somebody walked in this door and started telling you something, and half of you believed something like this. And got up and walked out and says, boy, that's great, I'm under grace, I don't have to keep the law anymore. Wow, I got her made. And quit doing the works that produce the grace and favor of God. That would be scary. And we came that close, didn't we? Because we knew this was the church of God. And we had to follow the government of the church. Well, what if the government of the church abdicated the law of God and the Word of God? No, it's God and His Word that we have to follow. Any man can deceive you. Do you think I'm in a position to deceive you? You better believe it. You've listened to me for hours and hours and hours. And you've seen many of the things, if not hopefully all the things that I've preached in the Word of God. And therefore, you have accepted the teaching that I give and you come and listen to it. And I'm not saying that's wrong. That's good. That's the way it's supposed to be. But, because you have put your hand on the stove, and not been burned, and have been taught the truth, that sets you up to be deceived 
if I were to choose to go a wrong way. The ones you trust can sometimes deceive you more than the ones you don't. If you know someone's a liar, you're very careful with what they tell you, aren't you? Somebody's been proved over and over, can't believe a word they say. When their lips are moving, you know they're lying. It's harder for someone like that to deceive you, but someone who has told you the truth and has a good reputation for that with you could begin to slowly lead you astray. Now, I don't intend to do that. I don't intend to misuse and abuse you. I'm doing my level best to try to lead you in right paths. But you'd better check what I say and see if it fits this book. And don't just accept it because I said it. That is a wrong approach. You need to find it in here, and if that's what it says, follow it. If it's not what it says, then you need to come to me and say, wait a minute. Now, the wrong thing to do is go to each other and say, well, he's all wrong about this, or that, or the other thing. No, go to the guy that's saying it. And let's go over it, and let's find out. You don't need to fear that, do you? Now, haven't people, I think I have a track record there, haven't quite a few people brought things to me that I did not understand, and I looked at them and studied them out, checked the Scriptures, and changed it? done that, haven't I? Well, don't be afraid to do that. Now, I might get in the way of that once in a while because of personal ego or vanity or whatever, or thinking I already know the answer. But you and I then have to work together to get past me to get down to the truth. And we need to be willing to do that. We should work together in love to come up with the truth. Your opinion and my opinion don't mean a thing. God and His Word mean everything. Now, I'm not going to accept everything you bring to me. Because I've rejected a lot of things that I couldn't find to be true in the Word of God. But I've made some pretty major changes of things that I saw to be correct. I hope I have not made any errors in doing that. If so, we'll revisit it and we'll correct it if it can be shown to be wrong. It doesn't matter how many times. How many times did Herbert Armstrong change Pentecost from Monday to Sunday to Sunday to Monday and back and forth? Several times. Because it was a very difficult thing 
to finally nail down. Very simple in most respects, really, when you understand it, but sometimes we overanalyze and complicate things to the point we can't understand it. And that's kind of the way that one went. But brethren, we've got to work together and get it right. That's all that matters, is let's get it right. Don't let any man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things comes the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not you therefore partakers with them. Don't go that way. We grieve over our brethren who were deceived and went out of the church that are following a wrong path now. Don't be partakers with them. For you were sometimes darkness, but now are you light in the eternal. Walk as children of light. My understanding of a lot of things has increased how many fold in the last 12, 13 years? Of things I did not know before. Things that we've learned. We've got to move forward and walk toward the light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Proving what is acceptable to the eternal. That's what matters. Not what's acceptable to you, not what's acceptable to me. What is acceptable to God? And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. We should not have those connections with this world, those friendships, that fellowship with them. Because they're going a wrong way, they have a wrong understanding... Our fellowship is with our Father and His Son in heaven, as the book of John tells us. First John, I guess it is. That's where our fellowship is, and it also says it's with one another. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be friendly with people out in the world. I joke and kid with cashiers and different people I run across in the world out there. But I don't go hang out with them night after night, imbibing of their thoughts and their habits and their ways. We may have acquaintances we've known for 20 or 30 or 40 years that are out in the world. And it's not wrong once in a while to spend a little time with them. But we should be reproving them by the way we live, by the way we react. If you don't enjoy the same things they enjoy and tell the same kind of jokes they tell, then that does is a reproof to them. It'll kind of bother them. They'll, they'll wonder why you don't walk to the same excess of riot that they do, as, it, as it's put in one place. They'll wonder why you don't think like you used to think. And they'll begin to wonder about you. What happened to you? Did you get religion or something? Well, yeah, I hope so. <laughs> so they'll be less and less comfortable with you if you do things the right way. So sure, you have old friends or acquaintances from the past, and it's not wrong to be friendly with them or maybe see them in passing once in a while, spend a little time with them. But don't hang out. And don't make that your fellowship. Reprove them by your good works. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. 
For whatsoever does make manifest is light. See that which is good, right, and true. Wherefore, he says, Awake you that sleep, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give you light. Maybe a quote from Isaiah 51 and 52 where he says, Wake up, put on the garments of righteousness. Wherefore, he says, Awake you that sleep, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give you light. Are we dead? No, it's, it's deadness spiritually. We've left perhaps the first love that we should have and become spiritually dead. We might be walking around physically, but that doesn't do you any good if you're spiritually deadheaded. See then that you walk circumspectly or carefully. Walk carefully, not as fools, but as wise. And some of us were over on the edge of the Grand Canyon yesterday and kind of walking around the edges of some rocks with some pretty good drop-offs. And I noticed that people were working, walking circumspectly and even standing way back and afraid to walk near. They were walking very carefully and watching everywhere they put their feet. They didn't want to fall over the edge. Now, spiritually, that's what he's saying here. Walk very carefully so you don't fall over the edge into this world. Because it's a fool that goes skipping along the edge of a Grand Canyon. And it just takes one little trip, one little misstep, and you fall a few thousand feet. Two or three years ago, there was people up on Angel's Landing in Zion, a bunch of kids up there. The kids were playing, the boys, boys being boys, were playing a game of who could get the closest to the edge. I bet I can get closer than you can. No, I can get closer. What's this? I get a little closer. A little bit one of them fell off. Smashed on the rocks below for being foolish. Let's walk carefully, not as fools, but as wise. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. The days have not been any more evil than they are today. So he says, redeem, use, don't waste the time. Use it spiritually to walk in the right paths. Well, it's really easy to waste time. That is one of the things that Satan has done to this society that is so dangerous. It might not be that some of the things that we do are intrinsically or of themselves wrong. But if they simply waste our time that we could have been using to gain, to learn, to help, to do, to serve, and that time is just frittered away, it's just gone. What could it have been used for that would have been more helpful, that it could have served, that it could have given, that it could have made you more godly? So it doesn't have to be evil or sin in itself. It can just be simply a waste of time. Do we need to relax at times? Yes. If we sit down and relax and visit with one another or visit with our husband or wife or spend time just sitting, basically doing nothing and interacting with our children and our family, 
Is that a waste of time? No. Because we're using it to encourage and strengthen and develop our relationships. That's not a waste of time. But just to sit and do nothing or watch TV or do something on the computer that's simply a waste of time can be wrong. I have mixed feelings about something I understood Herbert Armstrong used to do. And I don't know that it was a sin. I don't know that it was a waste of time. Sometimes, after a hard day and a sermon, he would be so tired, so emotionally wrung out, and it does wring you out, that he would sit and play with a deck of cards, play solitaire with his cards. But, well, isn't that seeking your own pleasure? Not necessarily. I, I don't advocate card playing on the Sabbath, don't get me wrong. But for him, who was emotionally wrung out, his mind, his body didn't want to function anymore, so he was just sitting there turning those cards over to regroup himself. Now, had he been playing a game of cards, I think it would have been wrong. Now, I have to be careful. If I say, well, that was probably all right for him to do. I have to be careful that I don't start playing cards on the Sabbath. But understanding what he was doing, I don't think it was necessarily wrong for him to have been doing that under those particular circumstances. I can understand the feeling in a way. There was a time when I was pastoring two churches and driving hundreds of miles on the Sabbath in between them. And by the time you give two sermons and counsel with people at both ends, which there was a lot more of in those days, <clears throat> maybe a Friday night Bible study, sermon in the morning, a long drive in between, sermon in the afternoon, anointing and counseling and seeing people you didn't see all week, and then you drove home that night and you're just kind of a zombie. And Sunday, all you could do is kind of stare, almost. You're just emotionally shot. And physically tired. And that was when I was young. So you just didn't feel like doing anything. Now maybe playing solitaire is not the right answer to that, but you see what I'm driving at. It isn't always a waste of time just to sit and stare at the wall and regroup. But let's be sure we don't just waste time either. Because it's easy to indulge the self and be lazy. So there's a difference there. And, and our purpose for sometimes sitting back and vegging out. What are you thinking while you're doing it? It's like the fellow, the janitor would come in, he sees this top-level executive sitting there in his desk, wheeled around from the desk, looking out the window. And the janitor comes, says, and comes to the CEO and says, you pay that guy a lot of money, and all he does is sit there and look out the window. And here I'm working hard. I'm cleaning his desk and I'm emptying his trash and vacuuming his floor. And he's just sitting there looking out the window. You ought to pay me more than you do him. You ought to fire him. He never does anything. The CEO says, if you'll sit in that chair and look out that window and think the same things he's thinking, I'll pay you just like I pay him. 
Maybe the guy wasn't just looking out the window. He was thinking. So you never know. Now you can gaze vacantly out the window and not think anything, or you can sit there and look out the window and be thinking about something that's important. But what's going through your head is what's important a lot of times, not necessarily exactly what you're doing. But let's be sure then that we redeem the time and use the time we have on this earth to further God's purposes and our acceptance into eternal life. Wherefore, be you not unwise, but understanding what the will of the eternal is. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Filling yourself with wine continually is not something that benefits. That's not wrong to drink wine. He says, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess. And yet there's a proverb in the Word of God as well that says to a man who is in emotional trouble, give him drink and let him forget his trouble. So occasionally you need to use wine or alcohol in some form if you don't have a problem with it or an alcoholic or something. But I mean, speaking normally, sometimes it's okay to drink enough that you relax and kind of forget your troubles. Get your mind off them for a while. The Bible says that. But yet if you do it every night to forget your troubles, then that's wrong. It's excess. So don't be drunk with alcohol to excess, but be filled with the Spirit of God instead of with wine. Wine has its purpose. It has its use. And sometimes it is there to relieve emotional distress for a short while while you regroup. But don't let it become habitual. There's the danger. God gave us a lot of things to use properly. Food, wine, a lot of things need to be used properly. Humor. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to God. Giving thanks always for all things to God and the Father in the name of our eternal Emmanuel the Christ. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as to the eternal. We've been over this fairly recently. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. That is a role that they have been given that is the correct and proper role in spite of the feminine move of today. The world has got that part wrong too. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Willing to do anything you can for her emotional stability and strength and spiritual enhancement that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. That he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. When we're rearing our children, we should be careful to try to teach them and guide them and lead them so they can be mature adults. And marriage is there as well to help us learn to be like Christ. If we can help each other 
in a marriage be like Christ, then we are helping point each other to becoming the bride of Christ. And he says a little later on here that that's what he's talking about. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loves his wife loves himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, even as the eternal, the church. I may stub my toe inadvertently once in a while, and oh, I don't like it, but I don't go around looking for things to kick with my toe either. I, I try to avoid that. And I need to be careful to be sure that my wife is not in pain as a result of things I do as well. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. We are here to be married to him. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. <laughs> it's hard for two people to live together in peace and in harmony and well-being and all those things. It's a constant battle to try to be what we ought to be. We make it in our society a battle between the sexes. No, it's a battle against human nature to treat the one you live with, with love and respect and kindness and gentleness, and do for them anything you can for them to help them, strengthen them. And it's against our carnal, selfish nature to do that. So it's a constant battle, day in and day out, to dwell in peace with another human being and point to living together forever in peace with our husband-to-be. That's the mystery. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. It goes on to expand the relationship in chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the eternal, for this is right. Now, you may disagree with them, but they are your parents, and they are trying to do things God's way, and they do have your best interests in mind. And you can be selfish and want your way, but that's not the way it's set up to be. So, you're going to be, at age 20 in God's reckoning, completely responsible to Him. Now, our society puts it at 18, God puts it at 20, the age of accountability. So, according to God's way, our children should be in subjection to us until they're 20, and by then, we should have helped them, and they should have helped themselves to become mature enough to be on their own and stand up as upright citizens. And they are supposed to obey their parents, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. Of the Ten Commandments, oh, we're supposed to keep those? Wow. Why did Paul say that? They're done away, aren't they? Huh, that's weird. Tells the kids to keep the Fifth Commandment. Because the promise that is given there is that you may live a long life upon this earth. But God says there is a blessing for being obedient and respectful to your parents. That he will protect, that you will live long upon the earth, not die early for the wrong purposes or reasons. That it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. He quotes that. 
And you fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. Now, they're told by God to honor their fathers and mothers, and you need to be careful not to goad them and push them in a way that just makes them bitter and angry against you. Now, it doesn't mean you shouldn't teach them to obey, but you need to respect them as human beings and love them and be kind and gentle with them and yet firm with them. Don't provoke them, goad them, push them to wrath. But bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the eternal. Teach them the ways of God. Servants or slaves, be, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh. There was physical slavery then. And there was instruction toward, from Paul to those who were slaves of other people, who were bought by someone and were completely under their jurisdiction. We're not there today, although we have people in the world who would like to make us totally their slaves. That's a different subject. We won't go there. But he said, even if, if you're a slave, somebody owns you, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and singleness of your heart as unto Christ. So have an attitude toward your slave master as if he was Christ himself. Treat him with that kind of attitude. Be a good slave. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but from the heart, from the inside as we discussed a little earlier. But as the servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. Be a willing, compliant, hard-working slave if you're a slave. With good will doing service as to the eternal and not to men. So do good just like you were serving God by serving your master. There's one that we have not had to deal with. But people in times past who were in the church of God have been slaves. And there was a way to be a slave, just as there's a way to live as a free man. Knowing that whatever good thing any man does, the same shall he receive of the eternal, whether he be bond or free. God is going to judge us and reward us according to our actions toward others, no matter what state we find ourselves in. Whatever state you find yourself in, be content. Now, you and I were made slaves. Being content, and to be a good one, and an obedient one, would be a struggle, would it not? None of us are in anywhere near that kind of a position. And yet... We find ourselves sometimes discontent, don't we? Frustrated? Well, just know that how you react in the situation you're in and how you treat those around you is the way God's going to treat you. He says, if you forgive, I'll forgive you. If you don't forgive, I won't. If you bear a grudge and stay angry, I'll stay angry with you. It's tit for tat. With goodwill, doing service as to the Lord and not to men. Knowing, oh, we already read that. Let's go to verse 9. And you masters, those who might be in charge, leaders, rulers, whatever, or slave masters, do the same things to them. Don't threaten, knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither, neither is there respect of persons with him. 
Sometimes we think we're above the rules, don't we? No, we're not. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the eternal and in the power of His might. Recognize He's a God of power and get to know Him and follow Him and serve Him so that you might live and work and be in the power of His might. God wants us to be bold as lions. It says in Proverbs that the righteous are bold as lions. He doesn't take pleasure in those who shrink back, those who move forward. A lion doesn't generally shrink back. He's bold and moves forward and knows his strength and knows what he can do. So we've got to use that strength and energy to build and uplift, not to destroy. We're not to be caring and destroying and killing as a lion, but to be bold in our approach like a lion. There's a difference. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. We don't fight one another. We don't even fight the people of this world. It's a different fight that we have. We fight against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Powerful beings, demons, Satan the devil. Why were we able to sing Psalm 81 where it says to depart from the lusts of the flesh and the covetousness that is in human beings? Because Adam and Eve were deceived by Satan the devil who had great power over them. And so were the people in David's time when Psalm 81 was written. So were the people in... Paul's time that he's addressing right here in Ephesians 6. And Satan is about as a roaring lion today, seeking whom he may devour. The reason people are bad today is the same reason they were bad in the past. They have a nature that Satan can easily influence. The prince of the power of the air. So Paul gives a strong warning here. We're not wrestling against people. We're really wrestling against Satan. It's those inner fights we have. It's not the outer uh, show of righteousness that is the problem. It's the inner spiritual conflict and the fighting against the pulls of the flesh that Satan loves to manipulate. He can take our nature and jerk us around with it. Wherefore, take to you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And the evil days are upon us now. Having done all to stand, strength and power of God. Adam and Eve succumbed quickly to Satan. And so has every man who has ever walked the face of the earth, save Christ, ever since. We succumb to his thought patterns, we succumb to his vanity, his pride, his ego, his self-centeredness. Those tendencies of human nature, he loves to play with. The lust, the vanity, the jealousy, the greed, the envy, that tends to be human nature is something that Satan just smacks his lips with joy and goes after 
That's why we have the troubles we have and the inner fight we have. Stand, therefore. Don't flop down, but stand. Having your loins girt about with truth. Know that you know the truth. Because if you equivocate, if you tremble, if you doubt, then you're susceptible. It's when people doubt something that they're easily swayed. But when you know that you know the truth, then you can stand for it. Those who will not stand for something will fall for anything. So the first thing is have the truth. And having on the breastplate of righteousness, you need your vital organs, your heart and your lungs protected. And righteousness protects your vitals from the arrows of the devil. It's got to be righteous truth. You've got to have the truth and then you have to follow it and be righteous. See, he's saying here, become invulnerable to Satan in this world around you. Become invulnerable. And here's how you do it. Your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Before you go outside in the morning, you generally put your shoes on, don't you? That protects your feet from rocks, from, from uh, weeds, thorns, stickers. Your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Wear the gospel and peace like shoes. Take the helmet of salvation. The helmet protects the head. And we are to be seeking salvation. And that is a battle that goes on in our head and in our heart. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Word of God cuts both ways. Sharp is a two-edged sword. We need to be sharp on the Word of God. So that someone on the side tries to deceive us, we can think of one, two, five, ten, twenty scriptures that will lead us in the right path instead of being deceived and led astray. Cut through the baloney to the real truth. Know the Word of God. Maybe your mind doesn't retain chapter and verse. But maybe you can still remember what it says. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. An attitude of prayer. An attitude of supplication to God. Now you have to live with you and I have to live with me. But I'll tell you what, every one of us, needs to be close to God, as, he, as Paul says, I think, in Thessalonians, be instant in prayer. Be in such an attitude and a mood and a closeness and a walk with God so that you can establish contact in an instant. When we drift away from God, it's hard to reestablish the contact. We need to be close. You know, when you're around somebody, a human being, a lot, and you talk about this, and you talk about that, and conversation becomes easy between you because you 
visit enough with each other that you kind of know what you're, each of you are thinking about, the things that are on your mind, and you can talk easier. But if you know someone that you've been close to in the past, and you don't spend much time with them anymore, sometimes it's difficult to even talk because you aren't sharing things in common on a daily basis, and therefore you don't know what to say. So you just kind of try. That's why husbands and wives need to communicate regularly so they can know what each other's feelings and thoughts are. And if they communicate regularly, they can talk easier. But if they go for long periods of time without talking, then it becomes more difficult to do so. That's that way with any human being. If you're going to talk easily with someone, you have to spend time with them. And then you have things to talk about because you're sharing those things in common. That's the same with God. If we talk with Him regularly, we read His Word regularly and His thoughts, then it's easier to have that contact. To direct our steps. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Praying constantly for each other. You know, it's really hard to be angry at someone that you were prevailing for from the heart. If you really pray for someone, and I don't mean kill them, God. That isn't the kind of prayer you need to pray for them. But if you are truly seeking their good, and wanting them to be in the kingdom of God, and praying in that direction. That's where you need to be. Perseverance. Stay after it, in other words, in prayer or supplication for all saints. And for me, Paul says, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. Sometimes when you speak... It's hard to be bold unless you know whereof you speak. So he said, I've said all these things to you, but he said, I want you to pray for me too, that I will be bold as a lion and say the things that need to be said because sometimes they're unpopular. Sometimes they hurt people's feelings. Sometimes they step on their toes. It would be easier perhaps to shrink back and try not to tread, rock the boat, try not to upset anybody, Try to make everybody happy. No. Cry aloud and spare not. Be bold as a lion. Paul recognized he needed to speak and be that way. So he said, pray for me, because he must have had somewhat of a tendency to shrink back a little bit. And he had to make himself be bold. So he said, pray for me that I will be that. For which I'm an ambassador in bonds. I'm a slave. I'm an ambassador for the kingdom of God. That therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. That's the way a minister should speak. God doesn't want us to be mealy-mouthed. He wants us to speak out. That's the way it is supposed to be. Maybe we don't like it. Maybe it hurts our human nature and our feelings. We don't want to be told what to do. That's one of the strongest drives in human nature, is nobody's going to tell me what to do. 
Well, if we preach it properly, we're not going to be telling you what we think you ought to do. We're going to be telling you what God says for you to do. Now, if I have my own opinions about any subject you want to name, I might be right and I might be wrong. So preach the Word, as he told Timothy, be instant in season and out. Preach the Word of God, not some other bunch of books or this or that or the other thing. The Word of God is what the ministry is supposed to speak. We don't need sermons and sermonettes about Dale Carnegie's picking yourself up by your bootstraps or this book on this subject or that book on another subject. We need the Word of God. Herein lies everything we need in this book. Now, there may be things that will supplement it, that will echo what God says. But the basis for any subject you want to name, any part of life, is found in this book. It is a directory on how to live. And it affects everything in life. If you want to know God's mind on something and the truth of the matter, not some author out here in the world who has an opinion about this, that, or the other subject, the basis for everything that affects us and that we ought to do is right here in this book. And this we need to speak boldly. But that you also may know my affairs and how I do, Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the eternal, shall make known to you all things. So he's sending someone to preach as well, whom I have sent to you for the same purpose, that you might know our affairs, and that he might comfort your hearts. So we preach boldly, we preach the Word of God, but there should be a comfort of heart in that as well. Peace be to the brethren in love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Emmanuel the Christ, Grace be with all them that love our Lord in sincerity. Amen. So there's the end of the book written specifically to the Ephesian church. And there's a lot there for us, is there not? So we'll end this sermon at the end of that epistle that Paul wrote.